morning is Nehemiah and uh, you can find it on your few Bibles. Oops, lost a bit of paper. I think it was four, eight, six. The whole of the chapter of Nehemiah this morning, chapter one. Nehemiah's prayer. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susia, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, before your before you, your day and tonight for your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are at the furthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the power of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thanks be to God. Good morning. When Joe first said to me that we're going to be looking at the life of Nehemiah over the summer, my eyes lit up, my heart skipped a beat, and I think I may have given out a little cheer. Because I am so excited about Nehemiah. Anybody else excited about Nehemiah? Yes, excellent. Good stuff. You know, I'd like to have started with a kind of game where we... um, we call out inspirational leaders of the Bible. But I think you've had too many clues, really, what with Christchurch life and the great work Helen does in the foyer with the display and the screen, and we've had the reading. I think you would have known where it was heading. But without those clues, I wonder where we would have gone. I'm sure we would have started off with Jesus, and then maybe Abraham, uh, maybe Paul, um, maybe Moses... Peter, King David, uh, John the Baptist. We could have played a kind of Old Testament, New Testament tennis for a little while, couldn't we? But for me, I would have started with Jesus 
and then it would have been Nehemiah. I love this faithful, obedient, inspiring man of God. In fact, when I arrive home in heaven, at the top of my to-do list, if I'm allowed a to-do list in heaven, will be to go and visit Nehemiah. Now, obviously at the very top, I want to worship God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit face to face. How awesome is that? Words cannot describe how incredible that is going to be. And then catch up with loved ones, a bit of banqueting, and then off to Nehemiah's mansion. Now I say mansion because in the King James translation of the Bible, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14 verse 2, he says that in his father's house there are many mansions and that he's going to prepare a place for us there. Now in our NIV versions, in the pews, those mansions have become rooms. In my father's house there are many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I don't know why my mansion suddenly became a room. But I am sticking with King James, and I'm off to Nehemiah's mansion. So why am I so excited about Nehemiah? I think it helps if we give Nehemiah his historical setting. Okay, so we're going to have uh, a quick reminder of uh, our Old Testament. Um, oh, well done. Um, and maybe you've not, this is fresh to you, and that's fine. Maybe, maybe you know it, and that's fine. We can go through it again. But we start off with a united monarchy. So the Israelite kingdom were under the united monarchy. First of all, Samuel anointed King Saul. Uh, Then he anointed King David. And then David's son, Solomon, took the throne. So there was our united monarchy. Now when, and that was from 1050 to 930 BC, so about 120 years. Now when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, succeeded him in 930, the kingdom split. Okay, so we had... Ten tribes of Israel going off to the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, and two tribes down in the south, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Now, you would think that the northern kingdom would have have done well. There were ten tribes. Um, They were going to a larger land, a fertile land. There was a, a strong military presence there. But spiritually, they were weak. Okay, so the Bible tells us that there, there were 19 kings of the northern kingdom and all of them were evil. So they kind of worshipped other gods, they worshipped idols, um, they mixed with other cultures and took on their traditions and they were unfaithful to God. So God sent messengers, he sent his prophets, prophets like Amos and Hosea to warn them, to tell them that he loves them and to tell them to turn back to him. But they didn't listen, really. And so in 721 BC, the Assyrians took Samaria, their main city, and the ten tribe just scattered and we don't hear of them again. So that kingdom lasted about 200 years. Now down in the south, the kingdom of Judah, just two little tribes of Judah and Benjamin, okay, they didn't have a great big land and they didn't have a very fertile land or a or military presence materially, they didn't really have a lot going for them. However, they were a bit more, they were stronger spiritually. They had the temple, they had the holy city Jerusalem and the temple was there. And they had some good kings, some not so good kings. So they actually lasted for another 150 years. But eventually, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, along with the Babylonians, came in he destroyed the temple, he burnt down the, the walls around Jerusalem, but he took the people, these Jewish people, in exile back to Babylon. 
Now, another 50 years or so, um, the king of Persia, Cyrus, uh, invaded Babylon, and he, he then captured the city. And what he did was a bit different. He decided to send all the prisoners that Babylon had back to their homelands. So the Jewish people who had been in exile were sent back to Jerusalem. Within about 20 years, they rebuilt the, the temple, um, but that was about it. And not all of them did go back. And then in 445, Nehemiah arrives on the scene. Now, incidentally, I think it's also important that we understand that Nehemiah is in fact the last book chronologically of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is set out for us like a library in different sections so that it's easy for us to find books. Okay, so we know that the first five books of the Bible are the books of law. Okay, and in that we can learn about how the 12 tribes of Israel came into being amongst other things. And then we go into the history books and we find Samuel the prophet anointing uh, Saul and David and then Solomon becoming king and then what happened to the northern and southern kingdoms, all the battles that went on and how they existed over these years. And we also find within the history books the book of Nehemiah. But then we have the wisdom literature and that's where we find the book of Psalms and a book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and a lot of Song of Solomon's. A lot of this was written by David and Solomon. And then we have the major prophets, so prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. So that's the way the Bible is set out. Okay, so we've got the law, the history, the wisdom literature, the, minor prof- the major prophets, and then the minor prophets. But actually, if it was set out chronologically, Nehemiah would be the last book. And then after Nehemiah, God seems to fall silent for 400 years before the New Testament begins and Jesus comes into the world. So you could say that Nehemiah is like the last great leader of the Old Testament. So Debbie very kindly just read the first chapter of Nehemiah's book. And note that Nehemiah doesn't start with a great description or any description about who he is or what he's about. Because for him, it's not about him. He's a very humble man. What he does is he talks about the need that he saw. So he's in, he's there in the sort of empire of, of Persia. And uh, he asks his brother and his brother's friends, now how are things going in Jerusalem? How are the people? And it's bad news. The people were in great trouble. They were in disgrace. The walls had been broken down. They'd been there for a hundred years, but the walls had still not been built. In fact, Ezra, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, had attempted to rebuild the walls with a little group, but had stopped due to some opposition. And these things just so disheartened Nehemiah. The, the city is weak and defenceless, and the people also seem to have a just seem to be a very broken people. So he's gone straight into need, the need of God's people, how it broke him. Then he turns to God in prayer. Then he gets up and he does something about it. He acts. What a compassionate, obedient, inspiring man of God Nehemiah is. Are we getting a bit more excited about Nehemiah? I hope so. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to share a story which is a bit of a confession. Um, for many, many months probably talking years but it doesn't sound quite so shameful for many many months 
um, dirt had built up on my windows at the back on the first floor. So my bedroom and bathroom windows and the fascia boards and around the guttering, it just got really, really mucky. And that's largely due to the fact that we have lots of fires around our way. It's not that I live in a community of paramaniacs, but um, we live in a woodland area, so we need to keep on top of the brambles and we need to keep on top of the bits of trees that keep falling to the ground. So we have lots of fires. And you know, it really got me down over the many months. And I got to the point where I was looking out my bedroom window and thinking, is it raining? I don't know. And I'd be down, hanging out my washing on the line in the garden, looking up at the fascia boards, thinking, oh, they're so grubby. And it really, really did get me down. So I asked, but we have um, an extension, ground floor extension with a rooftop. And I think that's what was getting me down, because I thought, actually, it is possible. I've seen people walking on rooftops. It is possible to stand on that and reach up to those fascia boards and wash my windows and things. So I said to my mum, Mum, do you think it'd be all right? Do you think I'd be safe if I went up there to, to wash those fascia boards? Absolutely not, my girl. Don't you dare. It's too dangerous. It's not worth it. No. Okay. So I do what we do when somebody doesn't give you an answer you really want. I asked Jamie. <laughs> and I said... Jamie, love, because Heights are not a friend of Jamie. And I said, Jamie, would you mind, do you think it'd be all right if I went up on the roof and, and cleaned the windows? He said, yeah, borrow my slippers. <laughs> because such is his faith in my uh, sort of abilities in, in, in sort of balance and coordination. He knows me well. But I still was a little bit fearful of the risk of a fatal accident. So um, for many, many months, it just went on. And then just a few weeks ago, a friend of mine called me and we were chatting about various things and then she came round to the fact that she was going to be standing on her ground floor roof to clean her first floor windows and that she's done it before but it's a bit difficult climbing in and out of the windows with, with water. And, and I said, that's amazing, I can come and help you with yours and you can come and help me with mine. And that's what we did. And it was a really lovely afternoon and in no time at all, in fact three hours it took and both houses were done. Now, I really don't want to encourage any of you to go walking on rooftops. Please do not do that. The point is, though, that for many months, I was a bit disheartened by it. I don't think I prayed about it, but interestingly, it was a prayer partner that came to the rescue, and we certainly said an arrow prayer or two whilst on the roof. But once we just got on with it, it took no time at all. It was enjoyable, and it was done. Now, for a century, God's people had been back in Jerusalem, but they had not rebuilt the walls. And I imagine them being a bit miserable and a bit moany, but just not getting on with it, a bit like me with my windows. And maybe they were fearful of enemy attack. Maybe some of them just didn't care anymore. They just didn't have the faith. They weren't bothered. In fact, you know, they'd been sent into exile because they were an unfaithful people. We, we heard in that reading, Jeremiah, um, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's what God had done. They had been unfaithful. They'd gone into an exile. And some of them, most of them, didn't want to come back. And even in Jesus' time, most of God's people were not in the holy city Jerusalem. They were dispersed. They were an unfaithful people. They weren't bothered. But when Nehemiah heard about it, he wept. He prayed and he went to Jerusalem and got on with it. So the walls had been destroyed for 150 years and it took a team under the leadership of Nehemiah less than two months to rebuild them. I think it was 53 days. You know, he wept, he prayed and he got on with it. 150 years they were broken, 100 years the people had been back in Jerusalem. And it, all these decades of thinking, oh, 
and actually, less than two months, job done. And we're going to hear a lot more about that over the, the weeks to come. But Nehemiah, he's a man of compassion, a man of prayer, and a man of action. Have we got that? Oh, brilliant. So you're getting even more excited about Nehemiah now. So. so what can we learn from this great and humble man? Nehemiah was moved to tears over Jerusalem, this, the great city of his beloved homeland. And you know, if we are close to the Father's heart, then we will feel something of his pain for the state of the world. I'll just say that again. If we are close to the Father's heart, we will feel something of his pain for the state of the world. What is it that breaks our hearts? What is it that moves us to tears? Something we've heard on the news recently? Something going on in our community, within our families, within our church? But just feeling isn't going to make a difference. As a senior official of the King's Court, Nehemiah was in a position to do something about it, to do something about the state of Jerusalem. And it meant huge sacrifice, giving up a very cosy, privileged life, living within the royal courts, enjoying the confidence, the trust of the king. He left all that behind to camp in a broken city that it's lost its way, the danger of enemy attack. But Nehemiah prayed and went on to lead the people in rebuilding the broken walls. And more importantly, he led the long process of rebuilding a broken down people, restoring their sense of identity and purpose as children of God. They had completely lost their way, but with God's strength and guidance, Nehemiah got them back on track. Nehemiah had called, sorry, God had called Nehemiah to do more than just feel sad about the situation. What is God calling us to do? What moves us to tears and to pray? And are we in a position to do something about it? If we are, I think we've discovered our calling. And it will cost, it won't be easy, it will probably involve sacrifice, it will involve change but it will be worth it. We can all be a part of God's work in the rebuilding and restoring of broken lives, broken communities, broken families. And I truly believe that when we are living out God's calling in our lives, there is nothing better. When we are living for the purposes for which God created us, that is when we become fully alive. I wonder if some of you are sat there thinking that you really want to know that sense of purpose and identity as a child of God. Maybe you had that once, it was a stronger once, maybe you've never known that. To know yourself as a child of God with purpose and identity. If that's you, please don't leave today without praying with somebody. There'll be a prayer team up here at the front. Please come forward. God loves to speak to his children. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking that you need help to hear God's voice, to know his calling in your life. Maybe you long for that, to discern God's calling in your life. What is it God really wants for you to be doing? 
Again, please come to the the front. Don't leave without praying. The prayer team will be here for you. Like Nehemiah, may we all have the compassion to feel the need in our world, in our community, in our family and our church. May we have the wisdom to turn to God in prayer and the faith to respond to God's calling in our lives in action. Amen.